Hear the word of God from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. You can follow along in your own Bible or on the screen. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jennifer. So for this morning, we have the pleasure of hearing from Pastor Curtis Andrusco, right? Say it right? Okay. I, people say my last name wrong, so I have a little grace with other people's. But thank you, Pastor Curtis, for coming out. Um, here at Waypoint, you hear our pastors preach on a weekly basis, and every once in a while, we like to bring in a, a guest speaker just to hear a different perspective and a, a different view and, and someone else's way that the gospel's transforming them and, and preaching the word to us. So uh, Pastor Curtis is the communications director at the Summit Church overseeing the communications team, the creative team, and all aspects of weekend programming across all their campuses. So that's, that's a big task. Summit's a very large church with a lot of campuses. So uh, He is married to Elizabeth. They just celebrated their 10-year anniversary. Congratulations. And they have three beautiful daughters, uh, Avi, Nora, and Kyla. And here's Pastor Curtis. Thank you for blessing us with the word. Yeah, thank you so much, y'all, for having me. Um, it's so awesome for me. I've been at Summit Church now for, gosh, about eight years. Um, and those y'all that know the history of your church here at Waypoint is um, you guys planted out of. Pastor Lawrence came through our church planning residency and planted out. It's hard to believe it's been five years um, since that. I was actually on the campus staff that Pastor Lawrence served with. And so uh, just such an amazing guy, an amazing church. Honestly, I'm a little disappointed to be here and not have him open and preach to me. And so um, I know you guys are incredibly blessed. Uh, I want to echo everything that just happened, uh, all these elders on stage, uh, if anything, for them just to have a weekend off from, from carrying the load and preaching the word of God. Um, for those of you that maybe are unfamiliar, maybe this is your first time, um, elders really do, they carry so much of the weight of just what happens in the church. Um, uh, four weeks ago, I think it was, uh, just as an elder at the Summit Church, I can tell you I was dealing, I'm dealing with um, a guy who has been committing adultery. Um, Three days later, uh, one of our best friends um, found out they had a miscarriage. Um, that Wednesday, uh, got a call from EMS 
and uh, a lady that serves in one of our ministries, her husband was at home and decided to um, kill himself uh, with their 12 year old uh, daughter and seven year old son at home. And that's on the tail end of some things that my wife and I are, which I'll share a little bit with you are going through. And so I'll tell you, it's a weighty thing. Um, it sounds great to come and stand and, and preach and pray and sing and sounds exciting, but it is a very weighty thing. And I know that anybody who takes on the role of elder, it's because they truly do love you and care for you and want to pray for you and want to shepherd you and help you walk through the toughest parts of your life and then uh, point you to Jesus during the greatest times in your life and all throughout. And so um, I, I don't know how y'all do this, but can we just put our hands together and say thank you to the elders of Waypoint Church. Um, Yeah, I'm uh, grateful for that introduction. I always cringe a little bit at long introductions because I feel like they're trying to make me sound important. Uh, the most important people don't need introductions, right? They just say like, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States, and that's all that needs, right? Uh, <laughs> That joke was a whole lot better before the current administration, but that's neither here nor there. Um, just a few things about me. Uh, like he said, I have been married for a little over 10 years. Um, three daughters, Avi, who's about to be five, uh, Nora, who's three and a half, and then our youngest daughter, Kyla Kate. Uh, she has a ninja name called Kibu. That's what we call her. And so uh, she is actually... I, I, um, the thing that my wife and I are going with tomorrow morning, actually at 7:30, I tell you this not for pity. I say this for prayer. If you think about us tomorrow morning, um, you know how you know how kids have plates in their heads that got to grow together, and they need a certain amount of time, the soft spot, all that. Well, when she was two months, they thought uh, her top plate had closed already, which would cause some brain stuff that had not. Praise God! So we went back for her one-year checkup, and. Um, the top plates are great, but the front ones are not. They have closed. And so tomorrow morning at 7.30, my little 15-year-old girl, uh, it's starting to hit me a little bit. So um, my little 15-year-old girl will have a six-hour surgery where they will essentially saw her head open and um, open up her skull and put in a biodegradable plate. Uh, and so we will be in ICU for a few days in the hospital the rest of the week. And so... Um, I'm here this morning to preach God's word to you. I'm thankful that God fills empty vessels, that God uses what is weak and shameful in the world to speak. Uh, and so that's where I am this morning. And so, again, I say that not for any type of pity, but if you think about us tomorrow um, or any time this week, uh, I'd ask that you just please pray for her, pray for uh, my wife, who, as you can imagine, if you're a mother, uh, just the anxiety that comes along with that. And so, um, anyways, all right, that's what we got. That's what I'm walking in here with. Um, Pastor Lawrence, uh, told me you guys have been going through your values. Here's a church and, and one of your values is gospel community. And so, uh, man, this, this passage in Mark 3 really just jumped out to me um, because to be part of God's community, this gospel community, as you come together as a body believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, that can only happen if you first are part of God's family, right? And so if you have your Bibles, what, what my sister just read, go ahead and um, pull them out, turn them on, whatever you got to do. We're going to be over in Mark chapter 3. And what I want us to see this morning, is how Jesus fundamentally redefines what it means to be part of his community, what it means to be part of the family of God. And we might think we, we understand this, but we all have things in our life, right, that, that uh, maybe words we use or things we think we understand that comes to a point where, where we say, uh, all right, maybe I didn't really understand that word. Or maybe somebody said, hey, you keep saying it this way. I don't, I don't think you really understand what that means, right? It turns out you, you don't really understand something. Um, I, I had this revelation, don't fault me for this. When I was a kid growing up, one of the things I loved, I loved watching uh, wrestling, WWF, okay? Uh, that's just how I was. Undertaker, Stone Cold Steve Austin. This was, this was my thing. 
thing. And I can remember uh, the very day, the place I was sitting when I learned, uh, spoiler alert, that wrestling is not real, okay? Um, I remember that moment. My, my entire worldview had been shattered. I'm like, well, well what else is not real? Uh, I, what else have I misunderstood? Is Stone Cold Steve Austin even drinking real beer? Is it just Natty Light? Like, what is, what is happening? Like, everything had just come crashing down as this, like, 10-year-old kid, you know? And um, we, we all have these things. My, my wife, earlier this year, um, actually last Christmas, around last Christmas, uh, this is not to shame her, but she, um, she, she came to me one day, she said, hey, you know what I just realized? She said, did you know this, that reindeer are, reindeer are actually real? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, we call them caribou, but uh, like they don't fly. Let's get that out there. But um, and, and uh, I had one of these this year, one of my favorite breakfast items. Um, how, how about how many people are pancakes versus waffles? How many are pancake people? Okay, how many would you say waffle people? Okay, waffle, okay. Um, I like pancakes, that's my thing. Um, well, I realized I, I was just making pancakes one morning and I was like, oh my gosh, they call them this because they're like little cakes that you make in a pan. And I tell my wife, and she's like, you're just realizing this? Like, like these things happen all the time to us, right? It, it reminds me of Inigo Montoya. He's like, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And so um, this, this, this just goes on. And, and you know, you just never been so confident of something and it turns out that you are just so completely wrong. Well, what we're gonna see today is that Jesus, again, fundamentally redefines what it means to be part of God's family. See, you might think that because you, you go to church or you grew up in church or you grew up in a Christian family or maybe because you prayed a prayer or walked an aisle that that is what has made you good with God, that he's happy with you, that your eternal bed of clouds awaits you in heaven. Let me tell you, you might think you're part of the family of God, and I hope you are, but here in Mark 3, Jesus is going to tell us that we need to think again. See, the author, Mark, he has written this gospel to show that Jesus has come with divine authority to forgive sins. In fact, Mark doesn't focus a whole lot on Jesus's teaching. Rather, Mark focuses a whole lot on Jesus's doing. He shows that Jesus is a man of action. What we see is that neutral is not an option in the Christian life. That when you truly encounter Jesus, there is no possible way you can stay the same. When you truly encounter Jesus, your heart changes, your outlook changes, your understanding of how things are changes. Because with Jesus, everything changes. And here in Mark 3, uh, Jesus is talking to a bunch of people who are convinced, some of the religious elite, they are convinced that they know what family means. After all, this is a very ethnocentric culture. But Jesus comes along is going to redefine how they understand being part of God's family. Jesus is going to draw a clear line in the sand between who is in and who is out. And so the title of this message has been on the screen for a while is Think Again. And what we're going to do, we're going to walk through these verses and see what's really going on here. And then I want to show you four ways that Jesus' challenges our thinking on what it means to be part of the family of God. All right. And so where we're going to pick up here in Mark chapter 3, at this point, Mark, um, Jesus, at this point in Mark, Jesus has been doing a whole bunch of miracles. He's been healing. And, and the words that he uses, it says, great crowds have begun following him. And so Mark chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 20. Verse 20 reads, Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. Now pause. The author here, Mark, he doesn't cast crowds in a very positive light. See, crowds to Mark represent people who just find Jesus interesting. 
To them, Jesus is just kind of this weird, interesting guy who's healing and performing miracles and levitating and doing magic tricks. He's kind of like David Blaine, right? They're just following him around. He just looks really interesting. But these, the great crowds are ones that would never really actually stick around and follow him for the long haul, much less dedicate their lives to him. They like Jesus as a lucky charm and as a miracle worker, but they would f fully reject him as Lord and Messiah in their life. And what Mark makes clear is that Jesus was not ever trying to impress a crowd, but rather Jesus had come to usher in a kingdom, that everything Jesus does has a purpose. And so look down at verse 21. Verse 21 says, And when his family heard it, Jesus' family, they went out to seize him. Your translation might say to restrain him. For they were saying, his family was saying, Jesus is out of his mind. <laughs> it's a bold statement. <laughs> Jesus's own family thinks he's gone crazy, so they're staging a little family intervention here. Now, you, you may have never been part of one of these. This is not a joke. My family, when I was in high school, had to stage kind of a little intervention for me. Um, it's not like I was a crazy kid or anything, but um, they did. I was going through a bunch of stuff and they tried to stage this. And so I did what any level-headed child would do to prove that I'm perfectly sane. I tried to run away from home. And so um, I made it to the front of the neighborhood, quite the rebel, I know, indeed. But uh, my family had to do this. And this is kind of what's happening with Jesus's family. They've come to kind of stage this little intervention with them. They were convinced that at best, Jesus was confused or at worst, he was deranged and had completely lost his mind. And here's why. They thought this because Jesus wasn't living a normal Jewish life. Therefore, everybody thought something was wrong with him. See, Jesus's obedience at this point to God the Father was so radical that even his own family thought he was crazy. Which begs the question, if we call ourselves Christians, little Christ, little image bearers of Jesus himself, it begs the question, do other people ever look at the way that we live out our faith thinking that we are crazy? Not crazy, crazy. You know what I mean by this. You keep this in context. But do they ever think, why, why would they not watch that TV show? Why would they not listen to the same music that I listen to? Why do they treat their marriages like this? Why do they have this view on, on divorce or, or, or sanctity of life or any of these things? Why do they treat social media the way they do? How can they have such positivity going through such hard times or going through pain? Does anybody look at you and the way you live your life and say, that doesn't make sense, therefore giving you an opportunity to tell them about the Jesus who therefore makes, it sen gives it, uh, makes sense in your life? And so look, everyone is packed in this house Look at verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. See, it's not just his family who thinks he's gone crazy. Everybody else thinks Jesus has gone crazy too. And the group that Mark singles out here is a group called the scribes. Now, the scribes were part of this very conservative Jewish group known as the Pharisees. You've probably heard about them, the religious elite. And so there's kind of the Pharisees who are the religious elite. And then within that religious elite, there's even a more religious elite called the scribes. And what is happening is that the crowds begin comparing Jesus's teaching to the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes don't like that very much. And so they've come down to, to see what Jesus is all about themselves and to kind of trash talk him. And so while they're kind of over in the corner as part of this crowd, they're kind of over in the corner of this house, trash talking Jesus. Jesus has this really cool thing where he kind of always knows what you're thinking, right? And so Jesus says in verse 23, he sa it says, and Jesus called to them, called them to him and said to them in parables, he said, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
Now remember, the Pharisees, the scribes, they're over having their own conversation. It's not like they asked Jesus this question, and yet Jesus answers the question that they never asked him in the first place. So they're probably already a little creeped out. And then Jesus comes over and he's like, hey, think about y'all's logic here. If I'm the bad guy, why would I be casting out the bad guys? <laughs> if I was sent here by Satan for Satan's rule, why would I be casting out Satan's minions? That doesn't make sense. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Y'all are supposed to be the really smart people in the group. But then the worst part is Jesus tells them, hey, your failure to recognize who I really am is going to ultimately lead to your eternal damnation when you actually think that you are the religious elite. He's telling them to think again. And then while Jesus is teaching all of this, skip all the way down to verse 31. Just keeps getting more interesting. It says, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Now the symbolism is so rich in the fact that his family is outside because what Jesus is about to do is to redefine who is inside his family. He is about to show these religious elite that who they think are in are probably out. And those who they think they're out are probably about to be welcomed in. See, one of the things that makes the gospel so beautiful and so scandalous is not necessarily whom it excludes, but rather whom it includes. Look at verse 32. It says, And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them. He said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so I want to give you four ways that Jesus challenges our thinking on what it means to be part of the family of God. What it means to be part of this gospel community called the church. And so first, Jesus challenges what I would call a standard assumption. A standard assumption. And we see this in, in, in verses 31 and 32. Let's look back at them. Verse 31 says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. Verse 32, And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, the assumption here, the standard assumption here, is that Jesus would have gone straight to his family, his earthly family, when they called. And see, we may not pick up on it as much because we live in the 21st century, but in first century Israel, your entire identity was built on what family you came from. These are very strong and very proud family bonds at play. So when Jesus's family comes to him and they can't even get inside the house, that in and of itself would have been incredibly disrespectful. Just think about this. Say right now, say right now, my wife is standing out in the lobby and somebody walked up here and said, hey, your, your wife is outside, she needs you for something. And let's say I responded and said, who's my wife? All of you are my family. <laughs> like, even in 21st, think about how incredibly disrespectful that would be to my wife, right? Like, no, this is Jesus's mother. She has precedence. She should have priority. She should have access to him. I mean, what's going on here? Did, did Jesus not love his mother? Is he just disrespecting his mom and his brothers? Of course not. Of course he loves them. But Jesus was using this opportunity to challenge the standard assumption about family and teach something extremely important that he had a greater family than even his biological one, that the family that he was creating in the church of Jesus Christ would trump even the bonds of biology. See, Mary's straightforward assumption was that family ties were the most important thing in the world. Mary didn't think she needed a backstage pass to come get near her son, 
She says, mother. But Jesus says, think again. And he goes on to show that he is clearly involved in other family business, if you will. The new family that God is creating in and through Jesus. And then Jesus goes one step farther in challenging their thinking by asking, number two, he asks a strange question. So he challenges a standard assumption and then he goes on to ask a very strange question. Verse 33, he answered them and said, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, if you're looking for a verse to write in a Mother's Day card next year, this is not the verse to choose, right? But listen, these were not the words of an insensitive and careless man who was indifferent toward his family. On the contrary, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give plenty of evidence that Jesus was deeply devoted to his earthly family. In fact, history shows us that Jesus has done more for the, the family unit along with the valuation of women and children than anyone else in the history of the world. Jesus wasn't being rude to his family when he ignored the request to come with them and instead stayed in the house. No, he ignored them because he knew that while their motives were right, their purpose and the way they were going about it was definitely wrong. Because see, if Jesus had gone with his family, he would have played right into the hands of the religious opposition. They would have said, see, even Jesus agrees with his family. He's crazy, he needs help. So you shouldn't take this man from Nazareth too seriously. Don't listen to anything he's saying or teaching. No, Jesus was on a mission and not even his earthly mother was going to stop him from that. And especially in the West, again, we have this view of family that leads us to want to protect and preserve one another, which is great, but we do that at any possible cost, even when it comes to the detriment of what God might be calling us to. Parents don't want, we see this all the time in our church, parents don't want their students to go on mission trips out of fear of the unknown, even if God is calling the student to go. Husbands want comfort for their family, which is a great thing to have, but often they do that at the detriment uh, of pursuing a calling that God has placed on their life that might lead to a less easy life, but one that glorifies God in the process. So-called followers of Jesus are willing to be obedient as long as God's will aligns with their wants. What Jesus is showing us here is that true family affection should actually be an encouragement and actually the greatest support of service to whatever and wherever God has called you, not a deterrent for it. I love the way one scholar says it. He says this, he says, a family should be a harbor from which the ship leaves to sail the seas, not a dock where it ties up and rots. Listen, what that means is one day, my oldest daughter is about to be five, one day, Lord willing, she is going to grow up loving Jesus, following Jesus, saying, I believe Jesus has done everything necessary to save me, saying, I'm willing to go wherever Jesus sends me to go. And God might call her to China. God might call her to Southeast Asia. God might call her to Afghanistan. God might call her somewhere where I, as her earthly father, am absolutely terrified. And my natural instinct is gonna to wanna to be to put my arms around her and say, no baby, don't go, don't go there because I don't know what awaits you there. That is terrifying, but she is going to have to kick back and say, hey, I have allegiance ultimately to God, my father first and foremost, and he is calling me to do this. He's calling me to share the gospel to unreached people groups. He's calling me to go wherever he, I'm just following him and going, and that is so hard. And my job actually as her earthly father, and more importantly, as part of her spiritual family, as her brother in Christ, is to support her in obedience to wherever God calls her to go. See, we as Americans must refuse to allow comfort to become more important than our calling and obedience as followers, followers of Christ. 
Because again, if Jesus really has become Lord of your life, then you will not be living life in neutral. You'll be seeking out what is God's calling on your life, not what is the most comfortable place I can go sit each and every week. You will go wherever he calls you to go. And it might not be to China. It might not be to somewhere that is really hostile toward the gospel. But listen, it might, God might be calling you just back to your home to raise up the beautiful little kids he's given you. God might call you as a teacher into classrooms. I don't know where it is, but God has called each and every one of you somewhere to go. And your job is to seek out God. What are you calling me to do? How can I be light and salt in this earth? Now, I want to be incredibly clear here. Again, Jesus was not suggesting that believers ignore or abandon their families in order to serve God. That's not it at all. All Jesus is saying is that, hey, you should be willing to put God's will above everything else in life. That's why Jesus says in Luke 14 that our love for God should be so great that our love for family would actually seem like hatred in comparison. Let's not be foolish here. Don't take me out of context. Let's not be foolish and think that Jesus is suggesting that we don't care for our families or provide for them. That's not what he's saying at all. He's just saying that not even our family should stand in the way of our ultimate allegiance to God that we can never become part of this gospel community until we have become right with God first. And so Jesus challenges a standard assumption. He asks a shocking question, or a, a, a question, at which, and then he continues to challenge our thinking by making third, a shocking statement. A shocking statement, which yeah, he says right here in verse 34. It says, and looking about at those who sat around him, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. Again, when you consider the importance of the family in the Jewish society, you can imagine how radical Jesus' words must have sounded to those who have heard them. Remember, he's speaking to Jews, Jews who are God's special people, Jews who are God's chosen ones. The Jews thought they were the only ones who could really be in a relationship with God because they were Abraham's descendants. God made a covenant with Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 that his people would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so these Jews say, I am a descendant of Abraham. They believe that salvation and favor and privilege and blessing were their very birthright. And we've already seen how this is a faulty assumption, assumption. And now Jesus hits them with this shocking statement to make clear again that when it comes to a relationship with God, to becoming part of the family of God, that heritage ultimately does not matter. That the new family he is building is not made up of descendants of Abraham, but rather it's made up of believers in Jesus. Listen, it's not those that are part of the right family or part of the right race or part of the right culture or part of the right church or whatever. Let me tell you, there is no physical connection that gets you an automatic bid into God's family. At the end of the day, the only family that truly matters from an eternal perspective is the spiritual family of God entered into by faith in Jesus Christ alone. The family that Jesus welcomes any and all who would believe and call upon his name for salvation. The family that welcomes zealots and the religious elite and the tax collectors and sinners and thieves and drunkards and adulterers and churchgoers and legalists and the self-righteous and cheats and the proud and all sorts of other sinners just like you and me. And this is the good news of the gospel, that God is creating a new family made up of forgiven sinners, that no matter what you've done, no matter where you sit, no matter what you come in here with, if you place your faith in Christ, you are made new, you have become part of the family of God, that anybody is welcome. 
I'll tell you, sitting over here worshiping, I am so incredibly encouraged by the sheer diversity that I see in this church. Rodney Stark, who's one of the most famous Christian theologians and historians, said one of the things that was most attractive about the first century of church was the sheer diversity that occurred within its walls. That it occurred within its walls, but then was spread out to the community. He said it's a place where rich and poor, where slave and free, where, where Jew and Gentile all came together in worship of one savior. In fact, if we were to go back and look at Acts 16, for anybody who thinks the church should, should look a certain way or be a certain way or made up of a certain type of people or people that look, look a certain way, look at this. I, I actually wrote this down sitting over there. Um, in Acts 16, the first members of the church at Philippi were a woman, a slave, and a Gentile who all served under a Jewish pastor. <laughs> Imagine the utter disbelief of somebody walking into the church at Philippi. <laughs> This is what the church of Jesus Christ looks like. It doesn't look a certain way. What it looks like is a group of people come together worshiping Jesus Christ as Savior, saying his, his sacrifice has paid for my sins and I am now part of his family. That's it. I can't imagine, even in a room this size, I can't imagine that too many of you would raise your hand and say, yep, I'm a direct descendant of Abraham, therefore I'm in, right? I can't imagine that would take place. I imagine most of us are not Jews in here, but actually Gentiles. Gentiles just means you're not a Jew. Yet the temptation for us is actually the exact same as the temptation was for the scribes and the Jews. See, it's so easy to slide back into some sense of belonging based on something rather than someone to slide back into thinking that your worth is defined by your social class or your friendships or your networks or your financial status or your clubs or whatever it may be. This is how I grew up thinking. I thought that God owed me something based on my background and my upbringing and based on the fact that I was in church every single weekend. So I grew up in, 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 I'd say, a good home. I grew up as a good kid. I was a yes ma'am, no ma'am, a straight A kind of athlete, everything. And I was in church every week. I went through confirmation class. I did the whole thing. But I was also living the exact lifestyle that every other high schooler and college kid was living. And so I've been able to grow a beard since I was about 12. So I could just walk into liquor stores with a fake ID and do my thing. And I, I mean, all the way down to the point, like I would only sleep around with whatever girl I was dating because I thought that was like the morally upright thing to do, right? And then all of a sudden, I, I'm cruising along in life. I'd be in church every single Sunday. Uh, the way I saw my relationship with God was I went through confirmation class, so I'm good as far as my, my salvation card. I got it right. And then I saw Monday through Saturday, I would just accrue this list of sins up on a, up on a whiteboard. And as long as I went in Sunday, as long as I, I, I showed up to church and said, God, forgive me for those things, because I know they're wrong. I know I shouldn't be doing these things, that God would wipe it clean. That's kind of how I saw my relationship. I'm being a good guy. I, I understand that I, I, I've sinned, but I'm living life however I want to. And then all of a sudden, summer of 2007, a bunch of stuff happened, some crazy stuff happened. I'd been dating a girl about five years who broke up. We broke up out of nowhere. I start sliding into just massive depression. I'm dropping six, $700 a month on partying and going out and just doing whatever I want, wilding out. And then this girl named Beth, who is now my wife, Elizabeth, she changed her name because she said, when I got saved, God did something new in me and I'm a new creation in Christ, amen. And so um, Elizabeth, I knew her as Beth. We had met, we were drinking buddies actually through some friends of friends. She walks in church one weekend, not a believer. She 
actually walked in church to prove to her atheist friend that God was real, the irony there. And um, they get in a drunken argument over the existence of God. She says, let's go to church. She has to go Google a church because she hadn't been to church in years. And so she shows up, runs into a girl named Carlotta that got saved. Carlotta invites her back the next weekend. Elizabeth gets saved. Elizabeth starts chasing after me because I'm getting drunk and posted stupid, depressing things on Facebook at 2 a.m. So she's not, she ain't trying to date nobody. She's in that Jesus is my boyfriend. He's the only guy I need in my life. Like that's it. And so she's like, why don't you come to church with me? And I'm like, all right, well, my parents' church is pretty boring and you're pretty hot. So sure, this is kind of a win-win, right? And so I start going to church. And while my wife's story, her story was like, walk in church, one person, hear a sermon, walk out a different person, new creation. It can happen to you today. That's what God does. God does miracles. Mine was not that fast. Because remember, I've been growing up in church my whole life. So I'm like, all right, you know what? I do need to get my life together. So, all right, I'm not going to sleep around anymore. That doesn't work very well. Okay, when I go out, I'm not going to mix alcohols. Okay, that doesn't work very well. When I go out, I'm not going to have more than like five drinks. All right, that don't work well. And actually leads to all these other things. And so um, that six months, I can tell you where I had I, I mean, I was in the church. I was, I was reading my Bible. I was trying to come to Sunday school is what they had at that church. And simultaneously, I'd go in church and I'd feel guilty because I'm living this other life. But then I'd go live this other life and I would just feel condemned the whole time. It's the worst six months of my life. And I started seeing Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, uh, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I got to the point, February of 2008, I buried my head in my pillow, cried like a little girl and said, God, I've always believed you are real. I've never fully submitted to you. And almost begrudgingly, I can say that now, almost begrudgingly, I said, you know what, God, I've tried it my way. It has not satisfied. It has not pleased me. I wake up every morning. I have fun for a night. I have fun for maybe a weekend or a season. Let me tell you, uh, if sin ain't fun, you're not doing it right. But, but ultimately you understand what it has cost Jesus. And I'd wake up and just have this pit in my stomach. And finally I said, God, let's just try it your way and see how it goes. And then I started learning that in his presence, there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That in Christ, he gives me a joy that is fuller than full. What's fuller than fullness? There's nothing. Every single one of us, right, are after some type of joy or pleasure. And I'm here to tell you, wherever you're trying to find that, if you are not finding it in Christ, it is temporary satisfactions. It is temporary joy. They will not last. I don't even know how I got this far. My point is, <laughs> my point is, I thought that my belonging to the church family, that I thought that my status with God was fine simply because I'd showed up to church on Sunday and I would have called myself a good person. I had never surrendered my life to Jesus. Have you ever done that? If you haven't, you can do that today. Those men who are standing up on stage right here, they would love to talk with you. They're not gonna shame you. They're gonna celebrate with you. My sister right here will sing over you. She will shout, she will clap, she will raise her hands and we will have a party just like in heaven when somebody gives their life to Christ, all right? Listen, God does not owe you anything. He doesn't owe you anything. That's not the gospel, that is works-based righteousness. The gospel is the good news that even though we can never measure up, Jesus measured up for us that when you and I sin and fall short every single moment of every single day, that Jesus has already made provisions for that sin by living the life we should have lived and dying the death that you and I were condemned to die, but not staying dead, right? This is why we celebrate Easter, because three days later he rose, conquered death to show us that even when we die in our sin, that if we place our faith in him, we will ultimately live. Though we die, yet we shall live with Christ. That's why he did those things. That's the beauty of the gospel. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. Yet God sent Jesus for you. 
Which is why when we come to church together, in case you don't notice, when I get excited, I start talking a little fast, I get on my toes, this is how I go. Which is why when we come together as the church family, we sing things, praising God like not of good that I have done nothing but the blood of Jesus, that this is all my hope, this is all my peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus, this is all my righteousness, it's nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, how precious is the flow that makes me, who I have painted everything red because of my sin, it makes me as white as snow that there is no other fount I know. I've drank at every possible fountain there is, ultimately it will run dry, except for the fountain that is called Jesus Christ. It is nothing but the blood of Jesus that enters us into that relationship, into this gospel community. Church, I am not presenting to you a standard that you must live up to. I'm presenting a savior that you have the opportunity this morning to bow down to, who then lifts your head. And when you do that, instantly, you become part of God's family, a family called the church, a family who can live in gospel community with. That means if you are here today and you don't know what it's like to have a family, I hate that you've gone through that, but you don't have to be discouraged because Jesus welcomes you into this family. If your family is full of dysfunction, that's okay because Jesus welcomes you into his family. And I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, even Jesus' family is full of dysfunction, <laughs> but it's full of a whole bunch of dysfunctional people who wanna point you to the one who can give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. If you've ever, if you've never been able to do enough or be good enough to feel like you are part of God's family, here's the good news, that faith in Jesus is the only prerequisite to being in God's family. And when you enter into that family, you instantly inherit a heavenly father who loves you. The Holy Spirit then who dwells inside of you, a brother and a friend in Jesus who constantly right now at this very moment prays for you alongside a cloud of Christian witnesses who have gone before you and a whole slew of brothers and sisters in Christ who would love to walk beside you and encourage you in this faith because your shared commitment to Christ means more than genetics ever will. Years ago, ABC News um, was giving a report um, during Desert Storm, kind of on the eve of a battle. And uh, they grabbed one platoon soldier and they brought him over as this African-American guy. And the reporter asked, he said, how do you think you're gonna, how do you think the battle's gonna go tomorrow? Are you afraid? And the guy kind of, stopped for a moment and kind of kind of thought and he said i think we'll do okay we're all trained and um he kind of paused and and he began gesturing over kind of like waving over um all his fellow soldiers they were serving in kids ministry <laughs> he started saying he started saying come over here and he began gesturing to all his army buddies of all sorts of ages and colors and races and he continued by saying he looked at the reporter and smiled and he said no i'm not afraid I'm not afraid, and he put his arms around both of them, and he said, because I'm with my family. And the other soldiers got all excited, and they said, tell him again, tell him again, tell him again. And the soldier shouted, this is my family, and we'll take care of each other. Church, if that's not the creed of the local church, if that's not the creed of Waypoint Church, if that's not the creed of the Summit Church, we're doing it wrong. 
We should be able to point to one another and say this, right here, look around, this, this collection of people from all walks of life, from all backgrounds, of all skin colors, of all cultures, of all political parties, this is my family. We should be able to say, we will take care of one another because we are in gospel community together because we are united by one thing, the most important thing, the blood of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our last way that Jesus challenges our thinking. He challenges it with a significant truth. A significant truth. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Jesus says, verse 35, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I can't help but read this verse without actually thinking of Luke 11, which is kind of a parallel verse to this, where Jesus is speaking about issues uh, regarding demons and following up on that other conversation about Beelzebul and him being Beelzebul and Satan and all that and, and following up with that conversation with the Pharisees. And in verse 27 over in Luke 11, something strange happens. It says, while Jesus is talking about this, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, she said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Blessed is your mother. And let me tell you, I love when y'all talk back to me when I preach, but this has to be one of the strangest things anybody's ever shouted at a pastor, right? Blessed are the breasts at which you nurse. You say that, I'm going to be like, all right, amen. This time to just roll on, all right? <laughs> like, this is a very kind gesture on this woman's part. I mean, she's actually paying honor to Jesus's mother. This was Jesus's privileged mother. It's kind of a Jewish expression. Uh, so Jesus turns and says to this woman, he's like, yo, that's creepy. No, um, no, Jesus didn't say that. He said, he actually, he says, he says, hey, actually, blessed not as my mother. He says, actually, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Take a minute to let that sink in. Those who obey the word of God are more blessed and precious to Jesus than even his own biological mother. He is redefining how we understand family. He's saying the only relationship with Jesus that matters is the relationship of the one who obeys the word of God who obeys the will of God expressed through the word of God, therefore obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, in this context, Jesus makes crystal clear who is family and who is not, who is in and who is out. His words could not be more striking or any clearer. Those who put faith in Jesus and then demonstrate that by doing the will of God and obeying his commands, that's who's in the family of God. Now, to be very clear, I just want to beat this horse, okay? Obedience does not start a relationship with Jesus. Faith does. But obedience is a sign of that. Gospel obedience is always first a result of gospel transformation in your heart. And you say, that sounds real nice, preacher, but, but I don't see that. Well, let's go look at Matthew and other places. Matthew 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You say, well, I don't really like Matthew. Okay, let's go look at John, John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You say, well, I don't really care for the Gospels. Okay, let's hop on over to 1 John. 1 John 2, 4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
First John 3, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. First John 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the father also loves one born of him. So everyone who believes that Jesus intellectual ascent is born of God, but by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And, and this is the best part of this verse. And his commandments are not burdensome. We enjoy following his commandments. We find delight in doing the will of God. And you say, what? You know, I don't, I don't like any of those gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They're all crazy. Okay, follow me over to James. Let's look at James chapter one. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Mark draws a clear distinction between who is in and who is out. Whoever does the will of God, Jesus says, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And listen, you will only know the will of God in as much as you know the word of God. You hear that? You will only know the will of God in so much as you know the word of God. And that begins by knowing the one whom the word is about. And his name is Jesus. And when you believe on Jesus, again, you receive the spirit of God, thus enabling you to understand the word of God, which then shows you the will of God and empowering you to carry out the ways of God. It begins by faith and belief. Listen, I'm not saying that your responsibility to your family isn't important because it absolutely is but the allegiance we now have to God's family becomes even more important. If you are a Christian, the role you now play as student or spouse or parent or child, all those things, as enjoyable as they may be, they are temporary roles that will one day fade away. However, your true eternal identity is a disciple. If you've been adopted by God, you are a disciple first and everything else is second which means God's story becomes your story. God's mission becomes your mission. Doing God's will becomes your delight and your desire because the gospel is not just the power to obey, it's the power that makes you want to obey. When my wife got saved, one of the things she used to tell everybody is she would tell them my want to's have changed. My want to's changed because in the gospel, you realize that Jesus did for you what you could never do for yourself. And that makes you want to obediently follow him. I'll end with this. Pastor Tim Keller relates this story to the story of the prodigal son, which many of you probably know. And he says this, he says, in relation to the prodigal son, he said, Jesus is the true elder brother. He said, Jesus willingly brings us into the Father's family at his own expense. Jesus died for us. Jesus was plundered for us. You and I get to sit at the Father's table dressed in Jesus's clothes with Jesus's ring on our finger. It's all through him. And then he says, we must celebrate and live out the fact that we are members of a kingdom family, of a gospel community. And that happens because it's all at the expense of our big brother, Jesus Christ. And then he asks this question. He says, do you live every day as if you were a member of God's family? A member who has been accepted and loved? Because remember, a child in a family obeys not in order to be loved and accepted, but obeys because he is already loved and accepted. That's the million dollar question. 
Have you ever experienced and accepted the love of God in Jesus Christ? Nobody in here was born a Christian. It's not by biology, it is only by belief. You only become a member of God's family by adoption, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Why don't you bow your heads? And I want to give you the opportunity to do that very thing if you've never done it before. Scripture says that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That looks like two words. Believe and receive. That's it. You can believe upon Jesus right now. You can believe that he has done everything necessary to pay for your sins. You can believe, you can tell him, hey, I am a sinner. God, I know I'm a sinner. But I believe you are so much greater of a savior. And I want you to enter into my life. I want to receive you as Lord and savior this morning. I wanna be part of this gospel community. I wanna become part of your family, Jesus. And I know, I now know I enter into that solely based on what you have done for me. And if that's you, if, if you've prayed that prayer again, I just want you to come find one of the elders after this service. They would love to talk with you, pray with you, give next steps, uh, give you next steps, or maybe you can tell the person you came with if you came with somebody. But what I want you to hear is you don't have to walk this thing alone. You are part now of a gospel community who wants to walk beside you. And so God in heaven, I thank you so much for your word. I pray even now that it has been opened that your word would return uh, what, what you want it to, God. We know that your desire is that none should perish, that all should come to repentance and faith in Christ. And so, God, even as the word has been preached, as seeds have fallen, I pray that you would incline our hearts to it, that you would open our eyes, that we may see wonderful things from it, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, God, and that you would ultimately, as we leave this place, satisfy us with your unfailing love shown in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for Jesus. We bow down to Jesus. We are forever grateful for Jesus. And it's in Jesus' precious and holy and wonderful and matchless name that we pray. Amen.